Uh, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Had some really nice weather this week. Hope everybody was able to get out and uh, take advantage of that a little bit. We've got some more good weather this week. A um, couple of things that I want to announce just before we start. First of all, um, this afternoon, right after uh, church service, we will be having our first uh, uh, search committee meeting for our new youth director. Uh, we'll be doing that up in the uh, fellowship hall for those of you who are here for that. Also, I wanted to start uh, letting you know about our plans for Holy Week. Uh, we've got uh, several things that we're going to have going on that week. Uh, the first is that we are going to be having a foot washing and communion service on Thursday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, if you've never attended a foot washing service, uh, it, is, it is just a very powerful uh, way that we kind of show Jesus, that we obey his commands. It's a powerful way to show that uh, we have love one for another and that we are here to serve one another. Uh, so we'll be having that on Thursday. We'll be having a Good Friday uh, service on Friday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, and then on Sunday morning, uh, Easter Sunday, we were going to be having uh, a, a lot of things going on uh, then. Uh, at 7 in the morning, uh, for those of you who are able to get up, uh, we're going to be having a sunrise service. Uh, it's going to be a, a, a brief sunrise service, but we're going to have a sunrise service at 7 a.m. Um, from about 7.30, maybe 7.45 until about 8.45, uh, we'll be serving breakfast up in the fellowship hall. Uh, so we invite everybody to come for breakfast. I'm not sure what we're having yet, but uh, I'm sure that bacon will be involved. Um, <laughs> because I will bring it myself. Uh, and then our Easter Sunday morning service, our, our, our main service, will actually start an hour earlier. Uh, there will not be adult Sunday school on Easter Sunday. We will uh, be starting our Easter Sunday service at 9 a.m. rather than 10 a.m. Uh, and that will be our full uh, Easter service. So just a lot of things going on. We're going to be sending out uh, an email later this week and next week uh, just letting you know what's going on. If you're not on our email list, uh, please email uh, churchoffice at morninghourchapel.org uh, or go to our website and sign up for our newsletter so that you can get this information and all of the other things that are going on. This weekend is the first anniversary of the shutdowns of COVID-19. Um, and I was actually, I was looking through my Facebook feed this morning, and if, you are, if you're on Facebook, you know you get those memories uh, that pop up. And my memory from last year on, the, on this date was first day COVID journal. And I just wrote down all of the things that happened. That was, a, uh, that was on a Saturday. Um, and we actually held a celebration of life service uh, for one of our longtime uh, family members here at Morning Hour. Uh, we made a decision to open the next day. Um, and then from the following week on, we were closed for about 10 weeks uh, because of COVID. And I am just really kind of pleased that uh, we have come as far as we have as a church, uh, that we were not really negatively affected very much by COVID. We only actually had a couple of people uh, either have the disease or have uh, family members who had the disease. Uh, we were able to continue 
uh, even you know just the simple things like paying our bills and making sure that the building was still kept up even though there wasn't anybody here. So I'm just really thankful that God uh, helped us to get through that time. And uh, now we're looking at uh, the possibility of a COVID vaccine and whether you fall on the side of yes to get the vaccine, no not to get the vaccine. That now is available, and uh, I know a lot of people are, get, are taking advantage of that. So uh, as we walk into this spring, as we uh, enter this fourth week of Lent, um, we have a lot of things to remember. We have a lot of people that, uh, that were affected. We have people that have passed away in our communities, in our neighborhoods, our schools. Um, but we also have a lot to be thankful for, and I, I'm truly thankful for God's protection over uh, the members of this congregation that we did not suffer uh, tremendous loss uh, due to COVID. Uh, so I'd like to just take a moment and uh, pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this past year. We thank you for all of the things that you have done. God, we cannot understand some of them. We don't understand the hurt. We don't understand the, the disease and the death. We don't understand. Uh, we don't understand why our congregation was, was protected and others were not. But Father, we know that everything that has happened over the last year and everything that's happened since you spoke the world into existence has been part of your plan. And Father, even though we don't necessarily always understand it, help us to accept it. Help us to lean into it. Help us to uh, seek it out for ourselves, for our congregation, for our community. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we continue hearing about this battle that Jesus fought for us so that we could be reconciled to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, this is the fourth Sunday of Lent, and as we are going through the Lent season, uh, we are exploring this idea of why Jesus had to come uh, and die on a cross in the first place. Uh, and we're looking at this battle uh, between uh, Satan and Jesus that, we, that we're calling the battle between two trees. And the two trees that we're talking about are the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And the tree of life we see as we go through Scripture, as we learn um, from the Holy Spirit, the tree of life really is the cross of Calvary. And many New Testament writers actually call that cross the tree. And when God created the world and everything in it, including humans, He made the world and everything in it perfect. And he planted a garden for the humans to, to live in, to eat from, and to work. Yes, God did create work uh, as part of his creation. And in the midst of the garden, he put two trees. He put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he put the tree of life. And he told humans that they could eat from any tree in the entire garden. And we don't know how big the garden was, but it had to have been substantial enough to at least uh, support life there for these humans and for maybe the humans that would be coming along later. 
But all the trees were available to the man and to the woman. Just one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the only one that God said, do not eat of this tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And everything was going fine in the garden. We don't know exactly how long it was from the time that, uh, that the man and the woman were created up until the time that the serpent walked into the garden. But everything was going along fine. The man and the woman who, created, or who God created, they worked the garden, they ate from the fruit, they survived, they had relationship with God. In the Bible it says that God walked around in the garden in the cool of the day. They had this close, personal, intimate relationship with God. And the Bible even tells us that the man and the woman were walking around the garden naked, and they were not ashamed. And then the serpent stepped in. And in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that the serpent was crafty. The the serpent was uh, maybe what we might call devious. And we also learn that the serpent's purpose, if we read that passage correctly, the serpent's purpose was to get the humans that God created to eat from that tree that God said not to eat from. That was his whole purpose. The entire conversation that he had with the woman had everything to do with that tree. Did God say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? No, he said we could eat of every tree in the garden, just not this one tree. Well, why not this one tree? God doesn't want you to have all of the good things from the garden. God doesn't want you to have all of the perfection of the garden. And he plants these seeds of doubt in the woman's mind. She says, God told us not to eat of this because if we eat it, even if we touch it, then we're going to die. And the serpent says, we're not, you're not going to die. Planting another seed of doubt into the woman. You're not going to die. You're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. And that is like the completion of the whole perfection picture. At least that's what the serpent wanted this woman to believe. You have everything except this one little thing. And all you got to do is reach out and take it and eat it. And you will be completely perfect like God. You will know good and evil like God. And they fell for the serpent's line. The woman fell for it. She didn't resist the temptation. And she ate from the tree. And her husband ate from the tree. Last week we saw the results of that one act of defiance against God. And we're looking today in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6. We're going to kind of uh, be reading along there. But if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles or your Bible apps uh, to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired or to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and, the woman and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And last week we talked about all of the ramifications of this discussion that the man and God had together. But that one act of defiance, that one thing, the only thing that God said, don't do this, caused the man and the woman to become enemies of God. And we saw how God's human creation then also turned on each other. And they laid blame on each other. And they pointed fingers all over the place. In, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. And we left off last week by reading Genesis 3, 14 to 19, where God tells the serpent and then the woman and then the man the consequences for their actions. And today we're going to read that section of Genesis 3 again from chat, uh, verse 14 to verse 19, and we're going to stop along the way and kind of unpack what's going on, or at least try to unpack a little bit of it, because there's a lot going on here. But first God speaks to the serpent. We also call the tempter. Later in Scripture, he's called the dragon, or that ancient serpent, the devil. And in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now often we focus a lot on the animalistic qualities and characteristics of the serpent here. Did the serpent have legs uh, before he went into the Garden of Eden, before he was cursed by God? Was he walking around like humans? Did he look like a human? And we get all of these questions and we get lost in the weeds of trying to figure out, well, what did the serpent look like? Who cares what the serpent looked like? The serpent was obviously attractive looking enough that the woman would have a conversation with him. His voice was obviously smooth enough, and he was crafty enough to get her to eat from the tree that God told her not to eat from. But our focus in verse 14 shouldn't be what kind of animal was the serpent or what kind of transformation did the serpent undergo. What I want to focus on is this idea of the curse itself. This is the first time in Scripture that we read the word curse. And when you look up curse in the dictionary, we'll find a definition, uh, something like uh, to bring unhappiness or evil upon, or to invoke evil or misfortune. And, and yes, God is invoking something here with the serpent, but to truly understand what being cursed means, we actually need to look elsewhere in Scripture. Look at other places where curses are mentioned. Because if we can interpret those things, then we can understand what's going on over here in Genesis chapter 3. And one of the most prevalent passages talking about curses is Deuteronomy chapter 11. And God is speaking through Moses to the people of Israel, to the people of the Lord. And he says in Deuteronomy eleven twenty six 26 to 28, See, 
I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Sounds a lot like what happened in Genesis chapter 3. The man and the woman did not obey the commandments of God. Actually, sorry, the commandment. There was only one. Don't eat the fruit of this tree. That was it. Everything else was free. But they didn't listen. They didn't heed. They didn't obey the commandment of God. And they went after other gods. Actually, they tried to make themselves God. But in this passage in Deuteronomy, a blessing is something all of God's people desire. A blessing is the favor of God coming upon us and it results in good things. And we often think, like in the church, and you know, we talked about COVID, and I feel that we were really blessed by God to not have had such a tremendous uh, negative reaction to this whole COVID thing. We, we stayed together as a church family. We were able to continue gathering. We were able to continue doing ministry together. We were, we were blessed. I believe that we were blessed. But if a blessing is the favor of God coming upon us and resulting in good things, a curse, if we really think about it, if we really kind of put it into this lens, a curse is just an anti-blessing. Instead of trying to get wrapped up in all of the kinds of things that a curse might be, we can look at all of the things that, curse, that the curse isn't and have a better understanding of what's happening in the garden. So when we read that God curses the serpent, what he's saying is that he is removing all that is good from the life of the serpent. You don't get to have good things. Like when your kids break something, we can't have nice things. You don't get to have good things anymore, serpent. We read that the serpent shall be cursed above all livestock and all beasts of the field. You are going to be the worst of the worst of the worst. That's how bad this curse is. And we see that this curse is absolute. We see that this curse is significant. But God goes on and tells the serpent, even after this curse, even after, yeah, you're going to crawl around on your, buddy and, uh, on your belly and eat dust for the rest of your life. He goes on and says, not only that, not only will you be cursed above all of the entire animal kingdom, but in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, enmity is hostility. Enmity means hatred. You're going to hate the woman. You're going to hate the woman's offspring. The woman's going to hate you and hate your offspring. Any women in here hate snakes? Any men in here hate snakes? I do. I, yeah. Enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And we get this idea that any 
influence that the serpent had over humanity is gone. That enmity is planted by God as part of the curse. You're not going to be able to be crafty with these people anymore. They're going to hate you for it. The woman and her children are going to make you constantly afraid of them. You're going to constantly be afraid of dying by having them trample on your head. It's a pretty significant curse for a creation of God. But God doesn't just stop there. God has some things to say to the woman and the man, too. And we continue reading in Genesis 3, verse 16, to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now I noticed something here, and this was the first time I ever actually noticed this of of the hundred times that I've read this passage. God doesn't actually curse the woman. God doesn't say that this is a curse. To the serpent, he says, cursed are you. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. For the human woman, God gives consequences, but he doesn't give a curse. Now, several of you in here are mothers. And several of you in here have experienced pain during childbirth. Anybody not experience pain in childbirth? That's right, the man. The man experiences pain after childbirth. But no, I'm just kidding. The woman, man, I'm telling you, I was in the room. Now, some of you older guys can, can confirm this. When your wives had their children, or your children, you stayed out, didn't you? You were out in the waiting room, right? Getting ready to pass out the cigars, doing all of that stuff, maybe pacing back and forth. I loved the Flintstones where you like pay, you know, pace back and forth until there was a groove in the floor. Y'all just stayed out. Not us. Us younger folks got to be in the room with our wives the entire time. And I got to hear the groans, and I got to hear the screams, and I got to hear my wife say not very nice things about me during certain periods of that birth. I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit was protecting her from saying anything worse, but when our older son was born, Wendy had to be induced to labor because he had gotten so big, right? And it was like, what, two weeks? We went, to the, we went to the hospital for, for the regular checkup that morning and the, the doctor came in and talked to us for a few minutes and then left and then the doctor came in and said, you need to go home and get a bag because she's staying here and she's having the baby in the next 24 hours. We got to get that thing out of her. Whatever it is, we got to get it out of her. And... Even though he wasn't full term, 
This kid was huge. What was the, what was the official weight? 10 pounds, 10 pounds, 14 ounces. Now, I know some of you have had bigger kids. But when the doctor put our older son into my arm, I thought I was carrying a cinder block in my... I swear, I, that is what it felt like. A friend of ours came and visited like within hours of him being born and, and, and he held... Uh, our son, and he was like, oh, you know, we told him his, his name's Thomas, Tommy, and they said, oh yeah, like Thomas the Tank, and that's what he feels like. <laughs> Thomas, thing. he like gave him back like in two, three seconds. He's just, I'm not holding that thing. But he was huge, and, and the whole time I could hear the screams and see the tears and, and all of the Things happening, and it was a painful experience. I would guess, I mean, I wasn't in pain, but I would guess, right? It was a fairly painful experience. And when our younger son was born, he came a little bit faster. See, actually, um, I was sitting there doing some schoolwork. I was working on my master's degree at the time, and Wendy, uh, her parents actually came up and were visiting, and I'm working, I'm sitting there working on my paper, and, and all of a sudden I hear, it's time. Now, my paper was due at 10 o'clock, and I wasn't done yet, but I heard, it's time, and I'm just like... <laughs> I didn't even know what I wrote, but I got like, a, I think, an A- minus on the paper, so I was okay. But it's time, and we left, and we went to the hospital, and I don't think it was 12 hours uh, from the time we got to the hospital until our younger son was born. And again, I remember the screams, and I remember the groans, but this time, Wendy's like... Um, I'd like an epidural, please. And the nurse actually looked at her and said, you don't have time. This kid's coming now. And it was, and, and the, the, <laughs> the pain in her face. The only thing that I remember was her yelling at me, take off my socks! I ended up getting one sock off before we were actually actively pushing. And for some reason, like for years, our younger son would walk around with one sock. Oh, he still does. Walks around with one sock on and one sock off. We figure it's because of that, but we don't know. I cannot begin to understand the pain that Wendy had to endure to bring these two giants into the world. I can't begin to understand it. I don't think there is any pain that I can experience that is that significant. The weird thing is, after the first one, I thought, okay, we're done. She doesn't want to go through that again. Somehow, God makes you forget the pain, doesn't He? Moms, so that, that, so that, that, you know, a year, two years, or in our case, like three and a half years later, let's have another one. And I'm like, are you serious? Did you not remember what it, oh, it wasn't that bad. It was that bad. But I can't imagine that pain. And that pain is a result of the consequences of the woman eating the fruit. And it says here that God will multiply the pain. So there was probably going to be pain anyway. He just multiplied it. 
And I think he multiplied it to give women a reminder of what happened in the garden. Do I think it's fair? No. Do I think it's just? Only God can decide that. But I think that that is what has happened, is God is giving women that reminder. He gives men a completely different reminder. But let's stay with the woman front, because the second part of the woman's message has really like angered more people than anything else, I think, in Scripture. He said to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to, husband, to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, ladies, don't stone me. I'm just the messenger. I'm just reading what God said. But unfortunately, there are several ways that this passage has been interpreted largely by men throughout history in ways that I don't think God had any intention of it being interpreted. Some will say simply that you know, the wife will want to defy the husband, but that the, the, the husband gets to have the final say. He's the boss. And it just kind of you know, gets that way. Others have suggested that this is a comment on sexuality, specifically that women will not have the same sexual desire as men, but that man's sexual desire is over woman's sexual desire. So if the man wants sex, you're going to have sex. And that's another one of these things that have been, I think, misinterpreted. Unfortunately, we don't get any more from God here. All we get is, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And, and I will say this, and, and you've heard me say this if you've heard me preach, you know, Conjecture can be a dangerous thing when we're trying to look at Scripture. And there's no real meaning assigned here to this passage uh, other than what we can read. But in this case, throughout history, it has been a dangerous thing. Men throughout history, even Christian men throughout history, have used this passage to suggest that wives are property, to suggest that wives must submit sexually to their husband, to whatever he wants. And it has been the source, I think, of much abuse of women throughout history. And if we read further into the Scripture than Genesis 3, we'll see that men should not read this passage and think that that's what it means. Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That means that men are to be ultimately sacrificial to their wives and want nothing but the very best for them. Because Jesus wants what is the very best for us. A relationship with God. I don't think that the historical and violent use of this passage in Genesis 3 matches the biblical interpretation of what's going on here. Finally, God gets to the man. And we read in Genesis 3, 17-19, And to Adam he said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. We get back to this curse again. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not as painful as childbirth. I'm going to just say that right now. But for a man... And I know a lot of men who are like this. For a man who has the deep desire to take care of their families, that has the deep desire to make sure that all their needs are met, God making work harder. God making work just this thing that we hate. We don't want to do it. That's a curse. Now God doesn't curse the man. God curses the ground. He brings an anti-blessing to the ground. The things that you have been used to, no more. Now all of the bad things start coming up. The thorns and the thistles and the weeds. Not because of the serpent's action. Not because of your wife's action. But because of what you See, God lays responsibility on each individual for what they have done. He says, you don't get to play the blame game. This was your choice. Serpent, you chose to come in and try to get these people to disobey me. And yes, it worked. You're cursed. Woman, you decided that you were going to disobey me. That was your choice. Man, you made the same choice. Don't tell me that it was because of your wife. This is on you. And no matter how many fingers we point to deflect attention away from ourselves, the serpent made me do it, my wife made me do it, my husband made me do it, God always looks to us as the responsible party. We are responsible for our own actions. And to blame other people for what we have done? God says that's not the way it ought to be. And the consequences that God gives are always just. We may not understand that justice, but God's consequences are always just. God curses the serpent one of the most intelligent of God's animal creation above all the rest of animal creation. You thought you were smart. You thought you were beautiful. You thought you were great. You're going to crawl on the ground until you die. Humanity's going to hate you. They will try to kill you. Almost every opportunity they get. He afflicts the woman with increased pain in childbirth because her actions would ripple through every child that was born from that time on. Your decision to eat that fruit is now part of your genetics. Is now part of life itself. And the woman and all women are reminded during childbirth the consequences for her actions against God. And God curses the ground because man misused the ground. 
The tree was growing out of God's perfect ground and man disobeyed and decided he was going to take what was not his. The man and humanity would be reminded every day they went to work with every thorn, with every thistle, of the consequences for the man's actions against God. And God introduced humanity to death. From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. You will live your lives away from me. Perfection has, has gone. You will live your lives away from me. Every time we lose a loved one, we were reminded of the consequences of humanity's actions against God and the pain that we feel every time we lose somebody. A little later in Genesis 3, we see uh, the more immediate consequences. The man and the woman are removed from the garden, uh, removed from this perfect place. And the Bible tells us there is one very important reason why. And this gets to the whole crux of this battle between the two trees. In Genesis 22 to 24, we read, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And the sentence stops. God stops speaking right there. If the man and the woman had eaten of the tree of life in the condition they were now in, there would never, ever be peace with God. They would live forever in that sin state. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And some people say, now wait a minute, are you saying that if Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of life, they could have lived forever? We could have lived forever? We wouldn't have to experience death? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Well, how's that fair? Why do we now have to experience death? Why couldn't we just, even if we couldn't be back with God, at least we'd live forever. But that's the point. God doesn't want us to be apart, apart from Him. God wants us to be in relationship with Him. If they had eaten from the tree of life, at that time there would have been no way to reconcile to God. And there's something hidden here in Genesis 3 and we might miss it sometimes. We miss God's unfailing love for humanity. Yes, there are consequences to our actions, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want ultimately what is best for us. It just means that we have to live with some consequences even in our disobedience, even though we are enemies of God, He wants what's best for us. And earlier in the chapter, when God is cursing the serpent, He is also sharing what would become the ultimate blessing on humanity. We had the curse, and He's giving us 
a blessing. As we connect various writings in Scripture, we see that God is in the midst of cursing the serpent. God is laying out for humanity His plan to win us back. He is laying out for us His plan to bring us back into relationship with Him. He tells the serpent that the offspring of the woman would bruise His head and that the serpent would bruise His heel. Another word for bruise depending on your translation, is crush. I like crush a little bit better than bruise. Crush sounds a little bit more formidable. He shall crush your head. You shall crush his heel. This is the first place where we read what God has planned. Satan will inflict damage on God's human form. And we'll be able to kill him. But that death is only temporary. That's bruising the heel or crushing the heel. On the other hand, God in human form, we know him as Jesus, will be able to completely crush the head of the serpent. He will be able to completely destroy Satan. And with him, sin and evil, and all things that are not perfect. And all of this will happen with God in human form dying on the tree. The tree of eternal life. God in human form will live among us. He will teach us. He will love us. He will heal us. And we will rebel against Him. And we will kill Him on a tree. But He won't stay dead forever. And this is the ultimate hope that God gives us in the third chapter of the book the third chapter of Genesis. This is the ultimate hope that he gives to the woman. The ultimate hope that he gives to the man. And the ultimate hope that he gives to all their offspring. In case you weren't sure, that offspring is you and me. When we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we can approach the tree of life and we can eat from it. We can surrender in front of it. And when we surrender at the cross, at the tree of life, we can be at peace with God, our Creator, once again. Next week, we're going to take a look at some of the skirmishes that have been happening in this battle over history. Some things good, some things maybe really bad, and some battles that are still happening today. I hope that you'll join us. But even more than that today, I hope that you will remember that you can surrender at the tree of life. That you can be welcomed back to God to be adopted into His family. Would you pray with me?
Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that from the beginning of creation, you've had a plan to win us back. Father, we know that you are not willing that any should die. And Father, we know the world that we live in a world that doesn't find you particularly attractive, particularly important. Father, I ask that you would rain your Holy Spirit down on every person of this church. And through our lives, through the way that we live, that we can be witnesses for you. That we can be witnesses that surrendering at the tree of life, the tree of Calvary, truly means freedom. Means reconciliation and means peace. Father, be with us this week. Let our lives be worth looking at. Be worth examining. Let our lives be lived so that people can't help but ask us what's different? Why are you so hopeful? We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go into our communities this week, our schools, our jobs, visiting with friends, finally, Pray that God will always be pleased with your witness. Show those who you encounter every day who Jesus Christ is and the peace that He wants for everyone. God bless you this week.